0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus
1: of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish.
2: Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern. followed by replays throughout the week. Now, the purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. As I look back at the year 2018, I notice that it has only been a handful of times that I used an ATM, and I don't even remember the last time I made a cash deposit uh, since leaving high school. As I'm sure most of you listeners do, I make my payments through a mix of credit cards, wire transfer, and automatic withdrawals. More than once, I've been frustrated by the high fees of moving money, especially across international borders. And also more than once, I've been delighted by new digital payment technologies. But what are the latest developments when it comes to digital payments and money transfer? And how is technology changing that we may move money around the globe? To explore this topic, I want to first welcome my friend, colleague, and co-author, Professor Nikolai Siegelkau, here in the studio. Nikolai and I will be talking to two wonderful guests. In the first half of the show, we'll be interviewing Camilla Chittel, Chief Operating Officer at MoneyGram, which is the second largest provider of money transfers in the world. And then in the second half of the show, I want to welcome Michael Todesco, who is the director of innovation at PayPal. At this point, welcome Camila. Thank you. Good morning. Hey Camila. Um, there are some, I think three hundred and fifty thousand agent offices providing Moneygram services really throughout the world. What has been the most rural or adventurous money agent, money agent location that you have personally visited?
0: Uh, That's a good question. Um, I do visit uh, plenty of locations about twice a year. We go on what we call a a road show. And I would say the most exciting one that I've seen would be Lucky Plaza in Singapore. It's where... uh, tens of thousands of Filipino overseas workers, uh, nurses, nannies, home workers, gather on Sundays, which is their only day off, to send money home to the Philippines. It's an amazing scene. Um, Lots of different money transfer providers are in Lucky Plaza. And it's fascinating to view um, essentially a microcosm of the industry in one spot.
2: Now imagine that I would want to send you 500 euro from a German account to say thank you for being on my show today. What would be the workflow on my end? How would I organize that payment from Germany over to you?
0: Well, that's a generous payment. Uh, Thank
2: you. W-2 will be in the mail.
0: Thank you. Um, So actually you have a variety of ways of completing that transfer. Um, In Germany, you actually have the ability on going on moneygram.de. You'd be able to send from our online property. You would be able to walk into a physical agent location, and you would also be able to do it via a new native app. So, uh, lots of different ways. Once you receive your reference number. You would be able to provide it to me. Um, You know, it can be texted as part of the the service. It can be emailed as part of the service. And then I would also have a variety of different ways of retrieving the money. I would be able to pick it up physically. I would be able to deposit into my bank account. Um, If I was in Africa or if I was in parts of Asia, I would be able to pull it into my wallet, my mobile wallet.
2: So I have the choice here between channels. So from from these agents that you mentioned, uh, are they basically, they're retailers, they're doing other things, and they're not your employees, right? They're just basically like taking a franchise there?
0: That's right. Um, It is a a distribution model that we leverage. Um, They can be post offices. They can be, you know, the Tescos of the world. And they can be largely just mom and pops. Uh, because we service, you know, primarily people who have left their home and are sending money home, we found that mom and pop's, you know, the ethnic markets, for example, are a great way to distribute the service. Um, it also provides an income stream for the small business in addition to, you know, offering a money transfer to our customers.
2: Sure. And what would happen on your end? So uh, I go into this mom and pop store or the Tesco in, in England. I'll basically give them the five hundred euro. And so what does the work and the workflow look like on your end?
0: You mean behind the scenes, what Moneygram would do?
2: Behind the scenes, yes.
0: So very importantly, we would have to understand who you are, and we would have to ensure we comply with all of the regulatory and compliance standards. So you know the industry is really changing in today's world because many places um, you know around the world are simply not very safe. And people do want to exploit, uh, different systems for, for criminal activity. We actually have to do quite a lot of compliance checks. We are the leader in compliance. We're the only money transfer company, for example, that is requiring ID at time of send and receive. And I focus on that quite a bit because it's, it's very revolutionary in the industry. You know, traditionally you've only had to provide name and address. Right now you're having to provide also your phone number, your date of birth, as well as your ID. So, a lot more information is being requested by MoneyGram, and we use that information to really understand who you are. We are transforming from being transaction-centric to very customer-centric, so we're aggregating all of your information across channels, and we're making, making sure that you, know, you are who you say you are and you're not somebody posing to be somebody else. Um, And then the money moves in less than 10 minutes. So as you know, since you're an expert in digital payments, money doesn't actually move anywhere in less than 10 minutes. Banks do a lot to slow that process down, as do country borders. Um, You know, countries want to control their currency, and they also don't want to slow it down. And they want to slow it down, so they don't actually want to move the money in 10 minutes. So we actually pre-position pre-funded accounts around the world, and we settle via those accounts, but the money itself is available on the other side of the world in less than 10 minutes.
3: Interesting. Hi, this is um, Nikolai chiming in. Um, So you started talking about sort of different changes that have occurred, both on the regulatory side. Um, Can you maybe talk a little bit more about the technology side underlying this? So what has kind of changed over time that allowed you kind of to, to make these transactions more efficiently?
0: Well, good question. I mean, the technology is forever changing. You know, we continue to integrate with different local payment methods. We now have reached to over 2 billion uh, wallets and accounts, um, bank accounts around the world, because we really believe in consumer choice. So, you know, MoneyGram does not have the brand presence or the visibility to really force consumers to, contract, to transact in ways that we don't believe they want to transact. So the digital-only players, for example, have really slowed down in their growth because they don't offer the consumer the ability to transact any way that they want to, including cash. So. For us, um, it's really about making that transfer efficient. You know, I can throw out all the buzzwords. <laughs> we are certainly investing in robotics process automation for suspicious report filings. You know we have a sendbot available on Facebook. But most importantly, I would say it's been that digital transformation of integrating into all the different bank accounts as well as all the different wallets around the world with all different payment methods. So, for example, in Germany, you would be able to, you know, fund your transfer with the local payment methods. In Australia, you can do it with the Australian local mm-hmm. payment method, etc.
3: It's interesting that you're saying so sort of on the one hand, you have all these amazing technological changes while at the same time, you seem to say, right, customers have still amazing varying degrees of needs, right? Some like cash, right. some have you know various wallets. Uh, so have you seen big changes on the customer side? Or if you think back 10 years ago, kind of what the customer's needs are similar to what they are today?
0: Absolutely. The mobile revolution is certainly making a difference for everybody, including us in the money transfer industry. Consumers are, you know, demanding Options available on their mobile phones for sure. Mm -hmm. They're demanding notifications. You know, they want to hear and hear about their money. They want to track their money in real time. So that is certainly uh, forcing lots of changes. And it's interesting, you know, people certainly don't want to provide information physically when they're face-to-face. You know, there's a little bit of a, perhaps a privacy aspect because oftentimes they have to say their information over, you know, let's say glass, right, with a teller, et cetera. But they're willing to provide the information in the digital environment because it's in the privacy of their own home, you know, on their mobile phone, et cetera. So it's, on one hand, it's really helping us get more information about our consumers and personalize our products and services. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it's also more convenient for them.
3: Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about this personalization aspect? Because clearly that's sort of the way lots of industries are going. And uh, right now uh, I see, you know, Christian walking into an office or, or pressing his button on his phone, which we would call like a respond to desire. Right. Christian knows he wants to send you five hundred dollars. And so he initiates this. Is, is there more customization or kind of even anticipation of, of uh, customer needs that you were engaged in?
0: Yes, absolutely. We are working on um, changing our loyalty program. So, you know, traditionally money transfer was very transaction-centric and, again, was not consumer-centric. And because of the fact that we distributed primarily via agent locations, that focus on the consumer just wasn't there 10 years ago, for example, um, you know, how you initially led with your question. So now we are finding that we do want to reward our consumers for staying loyal to MoneyGram, and we're um, going to be rolling out and strengthening our loyalty program. We are now offering um, promo codes, for example, right? So we, if you're normally sending to the United States, um, you know, that's probably not a, a region of the world that has too much volatility around currency. But if you're sending, for example, to wallets, um, you know, we will go ahead and uh, send you notification that something may be changing. If it's normally that you send, let's say, at Mother's Day or Christmas, you know, we'll notify you if there's a special going around that time. So, so yes, plus we're trying to personalize who it is that you're sending to. You know, as people that have left their home countries, they tend to get homesick. They want to feel connected and close to their loved ones. So we try to focus on you know, their areas of the world and bringing that closer to them via our apps and digital properties.
2: Says Camila Chitriol, the chief operating officer at MoneyGrams. Uh, Camila, in your opening comments, you mentioned uh, the situation of the, the, the Philippine clients in working in Singapore. So I would imagine their money transfer behaviors is quite predictable in the sense that they would send regularly certain amounts They might regularly follow certain rules where they want to balance an account in one country with an account in another country. Um, Back to Nikolai's comment of kind of waiting for the customer to do something versus being more proactive and and almost helping the customer to plan their transactions. Do you offer more or is is a typical uh, transaction one where I come to you with cash that I've just earned on the construction side and I just want to wire it somewhere?
0: Well, it's really a mix of both. So we are seeing, for example, those very predictable, very regular uh, remitters. We are also seeing, for example, people that send home for investment purposes. They may be sending larger dollar amounts, but less frequently. So the demographics are changing you know, as much as the migration patterns are changing around the world. And, uh, yes, we are exploring, for example, more of a subscription model or more of a, uh, you know, your TSA pre-check model, right, if we know a little bit more about you. We're looking at um, options in commercial transactions because traditionally our our world is, is truly remittance, right? It's really friends and family sending to one another. But there's such a big need for larger commercial payments to move around the world. And with MoneyGram's, you know, access and uh regulatory ability to transact around the world. It's also something that we're exploring for 2019.
2: Can we go back to the 500 euros that I will not be sending you from my German bank <laughs> account? Um, yes. So um, we talked a little bit about the workflow on your end. Can you give us a sense of uh, how much labor is here involved? Is, is there everything... Uh, beyond the agent, is everything automated? Or is at some point somebody from your employees gonna pick up a phone, send a fax, make a data entry, for a movement of 500 euros from, say, Germany to the US? Is there anything that has to happen manually?
0: Oh, I I hope not. (laughs) No, not at all. We only have 2,500 employees, um, and we're in 200 countries. Um, So we're highly matrixed, highly distributed. Um, And every single aspect of the transaction is automated. You know, we trade about 120 currencies on a daily basis, and we participate in more than um, 25,000 corridor pairs. So everything absolutely has to be automated um, in order to happen in a few minutes. Now, there are exceptions. We may have to put the transaction on hold, for example. If... uh, you know, Christian Turvish shows up on a on a uh, list of people that we're not allowed to transact with, then we may ask you to contact us to give us more information um, to make sure that, you know, you are the person that you say you are. But that's very rare. Over 98% of our transactions happen without any human contact at all.
2: Camilla Chetriot, the Chief Operating Officer at MoneyGrams. So that means... I mean it's basically zero marginal cost, so it's still two percent of requiring labor is, is 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 still a lot of labor at the end of the day given the volume that you transact. But so you're you're basically your costs are basically zero. And what would I have to pay in fees for moving my five hundred Euros over to you?
0: Uh, well, our fees tend to be less than five percent of the face of um, the transaction. So specifically right now in Germany, you know, I should have checked knowing that you're going to ask me. Question. <laughs> but it's going to be in the few euro range, and that includes the FX as well.
2: So that's a pretty good business model, right? I mean, so you're getting 5% cut on uh, something that you're basically producing at zero marginal cost. What what allows you to do this? What is what is hard about this, this has kept the barrier to entry for everybody opening up a transfer-wise kind of um, business model?
0: Well, regulatory, you know, what you covered earlier is certainly a big barrier. You have to be licensed to transact in these jurisdictions, and then you have to invest in the technology to, number one, move the money, number two, um, be competitive in the FX uh, trading aspect, right? So, um, and then, of course, all of the compliance checks. So, you know, I definitely don't want to downplay that one because it is, it is significant. Um, today, there's just not a ton of information in other parts of the world around, you know, ID, ID verification, for example, right? In Laos, they still have family cards, right? All family members have a, a written, um, written name and, and a, you know, photo, for example, in a passport type book, and we still have to transact with them. So the investment in compliance and technology is, is very, very large. We're also a closed-loop system, and there are very few of those, right? So we don't leverage other people's rails. We move the money among our own rails, just like Visa our MasterCards um, do, for example. So there is a significant investment. And, uh, you know, we are investigating blockchain. We believe in um, the value of smart contracts and, you know, over time, the ability to move the money securely without having to actually move the currency. But um, but that's still in its infancy, if you will. Yeah.
3: And I could imagine that the trust factor is probably also a big barrier to entry, right? I When I <laughs> go and, and give someone my money and hope it will appear in someone else's bank account somewhere around the world. Uh, so I could imagine that uh, that's uh, not easy to create, right?
0: Absolutely. The value of the brand is huge. Um, you know, again, these are aspects um that are very important to people a financial transaction is is one that's that's highly emotional for them and also very very important you know just like those nurses the filipino nurses have one day off that's the day that they use to send money it's like the cruise workers around the world who you know have the few hours in a port to send money home it's very important that the money is sent securely quickly and then it gets to where it needs to go
3: so do you have alliances let's say for instance with cruise ship companies because right quite often there are sort of blocks of people right working at, in, in concentrated areas or, or is it really just an individual to individual kind of transaction
0: it is an individual transaction, but we do uh, special things, if you will, for those types of cruise workers. For example, when, when we started uh, requiring ID and address for every single transaction, we started getting lots of addresses for cruise line headquarters yeah, right. in, in Miami, Florida, right? Uh-huh. So naturally we understand um, that those are and you know, we make exceptions to, our to ensure that the transfer is as easy as possible.
2: Going forward, what what type of innovations are you working on? Are you planning to grow by offering more services to your existing customers? Are you hoping for new customers? I could imagine for somebody who was working, for example, in Argentina with dramatic levels of inflation going on right now, Turkey is going similar to changes, um, some version of exchange rate hedging, some other way of basically protecting me as a foreign worker from things that are going on in the economy might might be a huge unmet need. What are you helping beyond just managing that pipe of the money flowing through there? So we certainly
0: watch for migration patterns around the world. Right now, we are focused on our digital expansion. So we started the year, we started 2018 with three online properties. We currently have 16 and expect to end the year with 20 uh, digital properties. So ability to transact online or via a native app. And that's really our primary focus right now. Uh, You know, our Ability to offer the best FX rates in the industry is always going to be there. We certainly will always charge less than banks to ensure that our customers see value in the service that we provide. But the digital transformation is our primary focus right now and you know we hope to also roll out the loyalty programs. As well as, um, you know, other feature and functionality that will ensure that consumers pick MoneyGram versus one of the many other providers in the industry.
2: Says Camilla Chetryal, the chief operating officer at MoneyGrams. So you mentioned this idea of uh, to make the transfer happen really quickly, that you are not literally moving the money around. You basically pre-plan money transfers on both sides. So that means that you have pretty significant capital outlays in parts of the world, many of them going through rapid economic change. So so how are you dealing with kind of current situations of dramatic inflations in some countries, really cheap money in other countries?
0: You know, it's a it's definitely a barrier to entry. Um, so we've been doing this for a long time, and we can actually predict uh, to a, a very, very close degree what will be happening um, with migration patterns. We do preposition money around the world, um, and we have been doing that for a long time. It is a what we, what we like to call a negative working capital intensive business, right? Um, because you have to have money. Uh, sometimes by regulation, for example, in India, you have to have the exact amount of money that is going to be paid out, available at all times in the banking system over there. So it is preventing from others uh, from entering. And then from our standpoint, you know, we manage that money quite well, and we have been for a long time. We actually get uh, investment income.
2: So people oftentimes talk when it comes to payments and money transfer about the disruptions either through the digital currencies like the Bitcoin, the PayPals, the transfer-wise, and kind of uh, when it comes to international money transfer. Who are you con- Who are you concerned about?
0: You know, it's no secret that the digital disruptors, if you will, are still waiting for the disruption, right? Um, A lot of them have made a big splash in the industry, and they're certainly applying downward pressure on pricing. We fully expect that pricing will continue to face downward trends. But a lot of them are running out of growth because they don't offer the cash payout. So there's only... A certain segment of the population that is going to be not banked, that is not going to use their bank for the transfer, that will also not require cash, and we really believe that we're uniquely positioned um, and are able to leverage our physical locations together with the digital currencies. You know, in more than 200 countries and territories, we um, we fully expect that you know the new entrants will continue to to disrupt us. Frankly, it's good competition, and we're happy to face the the challenges that they put forth. But, but we have seen them slow down, and we have seen them um, look for outlets with the actual um, physical payout locations, because at the end of the day, consumers want choice.
2: So it's a little bit of a last mile problem? I'm sorry? It's like a last mile problem in telecom that it's just uh, getting it like close to the consumer is possible but it's just the consumer wants cash in the hand at some point something physical needs to happen and again i think with with your 350,000 agent offices that gives you an advantage that nobody can just scale up digitally uh, overnight
0: exactly and the consumers don't like being told what to do they like choice so as soon as you hold their money too long as long as you force them to transfer it into bank account but that takes two days Consumers abandon that, um, and they pick for a more secure, more reliable offering. And we've seen that happen time and time again.
2: I know predictions about the future are always a risky business, but nevertheless, let me ask a question. If uh, in 10 years from now I consider paying you €500 for my German account, uh, what would be different? In 10 years down the road, how will money transfer across borders uh, change compared to where it is today?
0: I do expect uh, the smart contracts of blockchain to take over. You know, the world will continue to force regulatory changes. And I think at some point it's going to have to become more of a registration model. So... uh, more information will have to be known about you, more information will have to be known about me, may go as far as biometrics, right? We certainly do it today for the convenience of having a consumer not forget their password, so they don't have to call us, which is why we use biometrics on our apps. But I think over time, with what's happening around the world, financial transactions will become uh, much more regulated. And, you know, at that point, I hope that it's going to be on blockchain or perhaps even with cryptocurrency. You know, banks aren't ready for that today, but hopefully they will be at some point. And uh, it's going to be an even safer transaction, which will hopefully, you know, eradicate terrorist financing, for example, and and some of the criminals that look to exploit systems like ours.
2: Says Camilla Cetrio, the Chief Operating Officer at MoneyGrams. At this point, uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce my second guest, uh, Michael Tudasco. Uh, Michael is the Director of Innovation at PayPal, and Michael and I met at our Mastering Innovation Program in San Francisco uh, just last year. Uh, Michael, as Director of Innovation, what is your favorite innovation you're currently working on? My
1: favorite innovation that we're currently working on here would have to be um, probably in the area of augmented reality. I think that there's a lot of potential in that area, and it's something that's extremely exciting
2: You mean I could take out my phone, I could beam it at at, at a running shoe or at a bicycle, and I would say, like, I want this, and then PayPal does the rest of the transaction?
1: Why not? No, I mean, (laughs) that's the beauty of augmented reality. I mean, it is going to, especially as the hardware gets better and better. I mean, most of the form factors now are done on a phone. um, But as you see companies like Magic Leap and others start to move towards a a, uh, glasses-based form factor, I think it's going to become much more commonplace. And so we're going to just be part of the landscape, and you're going to be able to enable payments to people, to businesses, in many different ways.
2: Michael, talk about your responsibilities and what you do as Director of Innovation at PayPal. Sure.
1: So as Director of Innovation, I oversee our innovation labs. We have four around the globe, uh, two in India, Bangalore, and Chennai, and San Jose, and in Singapore. And as part of that, a big piece of our charter is to engage the 19,000 plus PayPal employees and enable them to be great innovators. And it doesn't matter whether they're engineers or designers or they're an accountant or a lawyer. Um, We want to give them the tools, the training. Um, and the work on future platforms to expose them to open up their ideas more so so we can build the great products on the platforms of the future.
2: And so how do you engage 19,000 employees in innovation? you have a big suggestion box there, or what is it, what is the trick?
1: <laughs> we do have a global suggestion box, yes, actually we do have that. Um, you know, one of the ways that we do because a lot of innovation frankly takes place in person, which is why we've actually set up physical innovation labs over the past couple of years to be able to do that. Um, so yes, while we do have digital tools like the suggestion box, um, we also have teams of innovation ambassadors that are in all of our major offices around the globe. Um, and they do things, um, like what we do at our innovation labs, just maybe at a slightly smaller scale. So this is everything from holding speakers, um, demonstrating new technology and new products, hosting brainstorm sessions, or whatever the local needs and desires might be, um, to really engage the community and people excited about innovation, get them thinking further down the road.
3: Um, Hi, this is Nikolai, the strategy uh, member of of the team here. Um, Thinking about sort of this whole payment space, obviously we've seen tremendous amount of innovation and new players come up and uh, every company seems to now creating their own wallet uh, and uh, you go to stores maybe not so much in the US but in China and there are at least sort of three different logos on every window and you just need to pull out a particular mm-hmm. app to pay um, can you just give us sort of a little bit of an overview of kind of the, the main players here and because some of them are closed systems some use kind of the banking system just to give us sort of an idea of, of what the different players are and the different systems they are using uh-huh.
1: And are you saying uh, specifically in China or are you talking about – No,
3: no, no, start with the US and then uh, – um, um, because I know kind of PayPal is different from a, from a Visa card, for instance. So just give us yeah. an idea of that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, you know, in the United States, um, you know, this is where very much credit cards were birthed with Diners Club back in the 1950s. And, you know, it was very much a credit card economy. Uh, here, although still an amazingly high percentage of transactions still occur in the United States using traditional cash. Mm-hmm. Um, but how we fit into the ecosystem, I mean, PayPal is largely a platform um, where we would enable payments from a person to a person or a person to a merchant or anything like that. Um, these are all partners of us that help to enable payments across our platform. So
3: you know, overall, incredibly complex. Hi, this is Nicola here. Um, just a question, sort of to get an idea about the competitive landscape, because um, there's so many new providers of payment services. There's uh, you know, Apple has a wallet, Google has a wallet. Uh, there are the traditional credit cards. Uh, there's PayPal. Uh, can you give us a, sort of a little bit of an idea of how these things are different? Because I think some of them are closed systems and using existing banking infrastructure. Some are their own systems. Uh, that might be kind of helpful for the listeners to understand a little bit the differences between these systems on the back, on the background.
1: Sure. Yeah. Let me, I mean, and it's this could go for well more than the hour designated <laughs> to the show. But yes. uh, let me at least cool. like, kind of touch at a little Great. bit on that yes. level on how these systems work. Um, so you know, I, I think in the United States, for starters, um, the traditional concept of a credit card was started in the United States at the Ender's Club. You know, back in the 1950s, and this has evolved into a system where, you know, you as a consumer will um, have a card that is given to you by an issuing bank. And then all of the local providers who are accepting credit cards, or uh, stores or what have you, you know, the grocery store, and well now they have banks on the side, um, which is the merchants are appearing. And then in between, those two are the credit card networks. So that is kind of the Visa mm-hmm. and MasterCards of the world and so forth. Um, so when you're doing a transaction, Um, When you're going into a grocery store in the most traditional way, you swipe your credit card, and then basically their bank is talking through the network to your bank, making sure the funds are there, and that's how the transaction is completed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is the traditional model, um, if you will, in the U.S. And even though I say traditional, still a large, large percentage of transactions in the United States and globally are still done with cash. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's kind of the the start of digital transactions. in PayPal, we have many different products and many different models, but ultimately what we are doing is we are part of this payments platform as well. Um, so we are there you know, as a way for merchants to actually be able to accept payments online or even in stores. We can enable that through our mobile point-of-sale devices. Um, And we, you know, work with banks on credit cards and we're also button on the website. So we're many different players within that complex ecosystem.
3: Interesting. Now, obviously, Venmo is also part of PayPal, right? Does Venmo have their own system or is that sort of different then?
1: Yeah, so Venmo is outside the rails of that. So traditionally, and for folks who don't know, as many folks under the age of 35 might not know, um, but Venmo is a peer-to-peer payment system um, that PayPal we acquired back in 2013, and it enables people to send money to each other within the United States. Um, The unique thing about Venmo is that also part of that, there is a social feed where you can see if people choose to display that, the transactions that they are making to their friends and colleagues or babysitters and nannies and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so within the world of of Venmo, um, a user, we might have a connection with a bank or a credit card to bring the money into the Venmo network. But once it's in the Venmo network, we're sending it from one account to another account within there. Um, But we're just also launching experiences like Pay with Venmo, which is going to enable Venmo users to then be able to have a Venmo-like experience as a button on a merchant's website.
2: Talk a little bit about your revenue model, Michael. So in the earlier part of the show when we talked with MoneyGram, they're getting basically a percentage, around 3 four, five percentage 4 5% on, on, on the price. I know that some of the PayPal transactions come with a, with a service fee. Others within the network are free. So how do you guys make your money? Yeah,
1: yeah. so there's several ways. So the, the main way that we make money as a company um, is by charging merchants um, for being able to accept transactions online. Uh, so in the United States, um, those rates as posted start at 2.9% and 30 cents um, for a typical merchant transaction. And there are many tiers, many exceptions, and so on and so forth. But that's you know kind of the basic number to have. Um, so a customer would go to a merchant's website. They select PayPal as their payment method. Um, they click on that PayPal button. Um, The customer would not be charged anything, but then the merchant would pay that. So that's our most basic revenue model.
2: Says Michael Todesco, the director of innovation at PayPal. So for that, you're managing the transaction, which is not costing you anything except for when it does. right? I mean, it's one of these things where probably (laughs) uh, 99% of the cost arise in that 1% of the situation where something goes wrong. Um, so tell us, from, if I would pick a random 1,000 thousand, uh, consumer-to-merchant transactions at PayPal, how many of those will require some form of manual labor involving your customer service?
1: Oh, boy. Um, I don't know the exact numbers on that. But what I could talk about, because I mean we do have a very large customer service team. We have protection that we offer to both buyers and sellers. Um, As part of the transaction, and that's the value prop that we give to merchants and consumers. Um, You know, one of the things that I I could quote as part of the transaction is, you know, and and it varies on a given quarter, but typically between 0.2 and 0.3 percent of our um, transactions, our, our total payment volume, would be actually related to then losses that we take as a company at PayPal. And so, and that's, you know, risk uh, in fighting those losses is a big piece of what we do and a big piece of our company's history. If you go back to the very early days of PayPal, um, you know, it was the thing that was able to keep us afloat. Um, And it's something that we're very strong with and very proud of um, staying within that range for transactions.
2: Now, do you have a sense that banks are catching up? I mean, I remember the early days of PayPal and just the delight I had in running a small business and being able to easily, just through some in, in some simple HTML coding, start to process credit cards and have everything organized by PayPals. But we're now in a world where Nikolai mentioned about a lot of the wallets and the new technologies. Do you have a sense that you're losing your edge and the rest of the world has kind of transitioned to the digital economy, or do you still feel like you're yeah. fairly comfortable in this position?
1: No, um, it's a great question. And, you know, I will say, like, we're definitely, this is why we need to continually innovate as a company is because, um, the world of payments is a place where very many people, um, are interested. And, you know, I think there's, you know, maybe more traditional technology companies, also the banks are getting into this world and so forth. Um, so we need to continually innovate as a company to stay ahead of that. Um, you know, just last quarter, our, total payment volume continued to increase 27% year over year. Um, So we are continuing to grow as a company. We're continuing to find ways to satisfy our customers. Um, And ultimately, while yes, I think maybe it was a little bit later that some of the banks or whatnot might have woken up to the digital payments game that we've been in for so long as a company, um, I think there's tons of opportunity out there for everyone. Um, You know, when we think about who our greatest competitor is, um, it's not the other buttons. It's not the other payment platforms. um, It's cash. And as the world moves more and more to these digital payments, we want to be the platform that's at the forefront of that.
3: Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the innovation part? Because sort of payments at least at first sight strike one as that is really commodity right i just need to get my money from my wallet to your wallet or from my account to your account uh so so what are kind of the opportunities to differentiate yourself on that or is it to the customer is it to the uh, to the merchants it's probably innovation on both sides but if you could maybe tell us a little bit more and give maybe a couple of examples here
1: Yeah, um, look, and and yeah, that's a big focus, you're right, and it is, we have two sides of our marketplace. We're serving the the consumers, we are serving the merchants as part of this. Um, And to give one example that's been, you know, really our most successful product we've ever had as a company, it's PayPal OneTouch. Um, So OneTouch was something that we launched a few years ago, and what it does is it is effectively a long-term cookie that you have on a device. So if once you one-touch enable your mobile phone, for example, um, what we do is we put this long-lasting cookie on there that is constantly monitoring to make sure that you are you. But what it does is it makes it so you don't have to continually log into your PayPal accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, This is obviously a pain point for many people. Um, And part of the value prop of PayPal is that, you know, so if you're using your mobile device, You don't have to remember your credit card number. You don't have to do, you know, run and grab your wallet or type it in on that small screen. We make it really easy for you to do that. And Mm -hmm. almost 40% of our transactions now are done on mobile devices. And this one-touch experience that we launched uh, makes it so much easier for somebody to use, to be able Mm -hmm. to do transactions as a consumer uh on the devices and this is something that's very much tied to both our technology prowess um and also how we're able to manage risk as a company
3: yeah no that's exactly what i was thinking kind of it's it's a little bit like cash right sort of, when i lose it it's sort mm-hmm. of a problem and uh, i don't want to lose my yeah. phone now uh but uh, yeah very interesting kind of on the on the merchant side are, are there any examples of of how you help them
1: yeah, I mean we're continuing to evolve on the merchant side as well, um, wanting to bring more data and analytics to the merchant experience, um, so that when we're able to work with a merchant, be able to give them more insights um, into the types of payments and what their customers are doing as part of the transaction. Um, so we have teams here at PayPal that are very focused on this merchant analytics side, mm-hmm. because if you think. Well, yes, we do have extremely large global merchants that are using PayPal. um, And they have, believe me, they have their own analytics teams and so forth. Um, You know, at our heart in many ways as a company, we were here to support small and medium-sized businesses. Um, You know, before I joined PayPal, I was actually a PayPal merchant myself at the startup that I was at. Um, and I didn't have full-blown analytics teams or anything like that. So the more tools that we could provide to those merchants, um, the more valuable they're going to be able to create their own customer experience mm-hmm. on the path.
2: So staying with the analytics theme for a moment, right? From the merchant's perspective, you could start to give advice saying, like, look, Christian, it looks like every three months you're running out of s- the stuff that you're selling. You might want to rec- reconsider your inventory policy. Or you might say like, well, you could source the ingredients or your supplies cheaper from another vendor. How much, how Mm -hmm. much do you get into the management support becoming like almost like a financial advisor, given that by observing all the payments, you really are having amazing data and insights into the heart of the management? Yeah.
1: You know, I think the short answer is those are areas that we haven't dove deep into yet. But um, Christian, you're absolutely right. I mean, the insight that we will have um, as a company when you actually see the payments transactions going through, um, there's a lot of value that we can provide. Um, And to give one example of, of another merchant product that we've launched in the last few years is called PayPal Working Capital. And how that works is that if you are a merchant, you know, that is already putting all your transactions through PayPal, um, what we can then do is that we can give you a working capital loan as part of that. This is something that we've launched in the U.S. And in doing so, um, what we would then do is we see your transactions. We know what your business is like. We understand the ebbs and flows of that. Um, and so then we can work with the merchants on, you know, from every transaction that you have maybe going across, you can maybe have a small percentage every day going to pay off that loan. And if you're having less transactions one day, you might have less money going towards that. And those are the kind of services, to your point, that we can offer because we have that insight into the payments, uh, into where the funds are actually flowing.
2: So that's a little bit the mint, the square type of business model that now you'll see all these flows. You can say like, well, what else can I do to you, merchant, that makes your financials be managed more professionally?
1: Yeah. I, so, you know, PayPal Working Capital came from um, a company that we acquired well over 10 years now called Bill Me Later, which now operates as PayPal Credits. Um, but this is a consumer and merchant credit business that we've had um, and has been operational for some time. And I think we 're continually evaluating just new services that we 're going to be able to provide to you know both our merchants and our consumers
2: says so Michael Tedesco, the director of innovation at paypal michael let 's go back to innovation um, and and okay. tell us a little bit again we We started the show off with uh, this idea of augmented reality the the crazy thing out there that uh, might transform payment maybe five or ten years from now. But you also mentioned you have 19,000 employees who have ideas for probably much more incremental process improvements all the time. Uh, How how do you Mm -hmm. kind of reconcile these very different types of innovations in your enterprise?
1: Yeah. um, So largely in the innovation labs, we want to kind of encourage innovation throughout the company. Um, But a lot of that um, horizon one type innovation or the incremental improvements, if you will, um, that is looking at that, and that is very much the responsibility of all of those teams within the company. Um, so we do whatever we can to create a culture um, that enables teams to be able to foster that innovation, that incremental improvement. What we also do as an innovation lab is we try to then give opportunities. Uh, to our employees to be able to extend beyond that and given them guidance on what the platforms of the future are going to be where we see these things to be much more prolific. So things like augmented reality, um, blockchain, robotics, things like that um, and we um, enable our employees to work in a 20% time type fashion. On actually building these experiences and so not only building these experiences as prototypes um, but being able to train up their own skill sets um, over several months at a time uh, in addition to what their day job is and so that's a lot of our focus as an innovation lab.
2: So you have 19,000 people that all are on a 20% rule meaning like one day a week they can work on the crazy wacky stuff of their dreams? Hmm.
1: Unfortunately, not all nineteen thousand are doing that quite yet, but there's the ability to do that within the company. Um, And it's something that, you know, for certain people, they're going to be extremely excited and extremely passionate about, you know, working on a robotics platform because they want to figure out how we might be able to meld identity and risk and payments into these new things that are emerging going forward. Um, and so we give the ability to those people who really want to kind of do that extra effort and have that extra um, opportunity um, to be able to do that.
2: Can you give us a sense of, of, of the scale if we think about, like, the Horizon 1, the more process improvements versus really the far out there? Right now on, in your portfolio, you're working on 500 kind of small process improvement projects and 10 big ones that are more radical? Or what, 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 how many projects are roughly going on in your organization?
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to quantify, especially the Horizon 1 type work. Um, You know, I think there are, yes, it is probably in the hundreds of those types of improvements that are going on all the time because, you know, that is very much being owned by the delivery teams within our company. They are responsible for that Horizon 1 type innovation. Um, What we do then in an innovation lab is we then you know, have a few focus areas, and we have several projects going on in each of those focus areas uh, for teams to be able to build prototypes on those experiences. But yes, I mean, it is much less than the overall uh, Horizon 1 improvements going on within the company.
2: So the uh, areas you're working on, are those themes such as uh, the blockchain, the virtual or the augmented reality, are those themes coming down from the top management as part of executing their strategy? Or what makes you as the director of innovation pick these themes to give them uh, forward for your employees to work on?
1: Yeah, it's really both top down and bottoms up to be completely honest. So we do work with the corporate strategy team and our leadership to try and identify what are the, you know, platforms that are emerging where we see PayPal being able to play, you know, maybe two to six years in the future. And where do we want to kind of tool up as a company within our own skill sets, if you will. Um, but also there's kind of that organic interest that emerges, um, Blockchain is a great example where we have a whole lot of people in the company who are very passionate, and very excited about the opportunities and what we could do within blockchain. So I think also organically, a lot of people raise their hand to volunteer or come up with new ideas um, in that area to be able to build out these prototypes uh, and experiences that we have as a company. So it really comes from both directions.
2: So the project selection is not just happening from some form of a review process or a committee saying, we want this. Basically, if you have a crazy idea or something that you want to innovate on, you have to kind of recruit your own followers. And if you're successful, so you have enough momentum to just get, get a project rolling?
1: 100%. 100%. I mean, there are some that actually are sponsored by an executive. An executive says, hey, it would be really great if we could build something that does X. And that will have its own team. But I could tell you there are probably just as many, if not more, examples of that grassroots type project that you just described. Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do this type of experience? Um, and if you can get the team together, if you could kind of recruit enough other passionate people, then we kind of give you the support structure, um, the exposure within the company, and all of those types of things. So I'll let you carry that to be
2: a success. Says Michael Tedesco, the director of innovation at PayPal. Thank you so much, Michael. You have been listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM. Let me thank my uh, colleague and friend Nikolai Zyglo for hanging in there with me. Uh, you can have access to the older episodes from our show on workoftomorrow.com. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Terbish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening.